0: Hey there pastor mark here it's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with jesus we're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners and if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give god bless well revelation chapter number 22 if you want to head over that way of course, happy Labor Day weekend to everybody. Uh, some of you did some things and some hangouts some barbecues yesterday. Uh, more than a few of you have pointed out, you got some sun, Pastor. Yes, I did. Uh, we went to Lake Erie yesterday as a family, and I neglected the sunscreen. And I'm not sure if I regret it yet or not, but I uh, got a little bit of sun, and I've already enjoyed it, but we tried to soak it all in because our team from the church uh, there's a few dozen of us that are headed down to Nashville for, uh, for the SING conference here, and we leave right after the service, so I need to preach quickly so we can get the bus loaded and get out of here. No, I won't preach that quick. It'll be normal. But uh, those of you that have things going on this afternoon, you're going camping, you're having a barbecue tomorrow with the family, enjoy the time. Invest in those relationships, and, uh, and, and I hope that you have a good time while you do it. They say that all good things must come to an end. Generically true, literally not, but generically it is true, and that's true of our Revelation series because, one, it's been good. I've been reminded of the first chapter where we're told that you're blessed if you read, hear, and keep the words of this prophecy, and certainly I know in my own personal life I've been blessed by what we've been able to unfold over the last, uh, not just few weeks, but over the last 30-something weeks as we have walked through Revelation. Uh, but it is coming to an end today. This is our last sermon here. Uh, next week we start a new series called Practicing the Practices, looking at the habits and the practices of Jesus that we want to implement in our life, right? And the idea is we're just going to look and say, what did Jesus do? Well, then why don't we just do as he did, right? Why don't we take what was important to him and make it a rhythm and important to us? I'm really excited about that, launching next Sunday. Uh, But this is coming to an end. But what we've learned from Revelation is that literally all good things coming to an end is not true. Like the opposite is true. As we've worked through chapter 19 and chapter 20 and chapter 21, even chapter number 22, there are so many good things, namely, a new heaven and a new earth, new bodies, God being with his people, seeing him face to face, those good things do not come to an end. They are eternity. They are in front of us, and it will be what we enjoy forever with our Savior. But we've now covered all the prophecy. There's no new like unfolding of this is going to happen or that is going to happen. Now you just have the conclusion to the book. In verse number 6 of chapter number 22, John begins to give us what I would call just his closing arguments. And there are at least seven of them. There's probably more, but I've selected seven of them out. If you're thinking, you said you were going to preach a little bit shorter, then you said maybe not, maybe. But now you're going to give us seven points. Like that's four more than normal. I don't know how this is going to work. Just trust me. Hold on. Listen fast. I'll talk fast. But there are at least seven different closing arguments that John lays out to land the plane that is revelation. So let's take them together. Verse number six, you find that this book is a sure word to follow. Verse number six, he said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Ever heard something so incredible that you were incredulous? Right, the saying, it's too good to be true. If you're not careful, you can come to the end of Revelation and say, man, I have seen the new heaven and the new earth, and I've seen the new bodies, and I've seen this idea that Satan is going to be done away with, and that we will dwell with God, and that that we are going to enjoy him, and the marriage supper of the Lamb, and this is too good to be true. And you get this immediate reminder of, no, 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 this is so good, but it is literally true. These words are faithful and true. It is a guaranteed promise. You can read it with all certainty that we, as God's people, will spend eternity enjoying a victory that is secured for us by Jesus. And that great future is all true. You can bank on it. And he uses kind of this wording to help us know that we can bank on it. The Lord God, quote, of the holy prophets is the one who said it. That's an interesting way to refer to God, the Lord God of the holy prophets. What is he doing? What he's trying to do is cause us to remember that God has been making bold predictions and God has been giving quote unquote hot takes through his set apart holy prophets for centuries. And look back, was God true or a liar? Was his word faithful or not? Did what he say would come to pass? come to pass, and if you can look back and say that the God of the holy prophets is the one who's saying this, the God who has been true, we can know he will be true. We can rest assured that this is certain and that we can bank on this, right? He mentions at the end of verse number six that these things must shortly be done. In verse number seven, behold, I come quickly. More to come on those phrases later, but I love how he ends verse number seven. He says, blessed, is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. This is exactly what we saw at the beginning of Revelation. I mentioned it earlier. Blessed is the one who hears. Blessed is the one who reads. Blessed is the one who keeps. You can't just hear it and read it, but not keep it. Blessed is the one who keeps the prophecies of this book, the sayings of this book. Right. This is telling you why the prophecy exists. First and foremost, to disclose Jesus... But above and beyond that, maybe is, there's things for us to implement in our life. There are things for us to do. There are sayings to keep. There are prophecies to keep. There are action items, right? He's saying, if all this is, is information to satisfy your curiosity, you've missed it. You're not blessed by knowing more than somebody else, period, the end, You're blessed because you read and you hear, but then you keep. There is information here that's applicable to your life. This is meant to inform and to shape how you live today, how you act today, how you behave today. So take the prophecies, take the sayings, and literally keep them. This, if you remember, is not just the conclusion to the book of Revelation, but the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus, he ended, concluded his sermon in the same way. Jesus gives in Matthew 5, and Matthew 6, and Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He gives the Beatitudes, blessed is he, da-da-da-da. He gives us the, the Our Father or the model prayer, our Father would chart in heaven, hallowed be thy name, pray this way. He gives us so much to hold on to, but he gets to the end. And here's what he says. You are a foolish person or a wise person based on what you do with my sermon and my information. Foolish is the man who builds his house on the sand. And wise is the man who builds his house on the rock. And what is the man who builds his house on the sand and what is the man who builds the house on the rock? The one who builds on the sand is the one who hears the word, but he is not a doer. He's a hearer, not a doer. The one who is wise, the one who builds his house on the rock, is the one who hears and does. Is a hearer and a doer, right? The same is true, not just for Jesus' sermon, but for the book of Revelation. Blessed is one, wise is the one, building your house on the rock you are, if you are hearing and doing, if you are keeping the sayings, if you are taking the information, integrating it and applying it to your life so that it helps you live a better Christian life today. Peter said the exact same thing. When Peter thought about the new heavens and the new earth, he says, based off of this information, what manner of holy conversation should we live? What kind of holy life should we live based off of this information? It's over and over and over again in the Bible. The point I'm trying to make is this. This is a sure word, but it is a sure word to follow. It is not meant for you just to know more than somebody else or satisfy your curiosity. It is meant to help you live in righteousness and godliness. It's meant to give you action items for your life. Verse number 8, you get this awesome moment and terrible moment all at the same time. It's awesome because you learn so many vital truths, namely that you would worship God, not his servants. But it's terrible because John does something very wrong. Verse number eight, I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard them, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. Right, you tell me, Worshiping an angel, good idea or bad idea? Bad idea, all right? I'm not sure if this is a temporary fit of insanity or what, but John falls down and begins to worship this angel. And there's a problem because now he's worshiping the creature rather than the creator, right? And this is an amazing servant of God here who's giving him these things, but you never allow your admiration for a servant of God, no matter how admirable they are. You never allow the admiration to eclipse your focus on the Lord. When you do that, you are set up for disaster. There are some amazing people that God has chosen to work through. It could be uh, he's choosing to work through an angel. It could be he's choosing to work through the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or John. It could be that he's choosing to work through your grandmother or your Sunday school teacher or a spiritual mentor or one of your pastors but you do not ever allow your respect or your honor or your veneration or your admiration of that person to become so great that now you begin to blot out your focus and love and admiration of God. That never goes well. And people do it all the time. Like John just got the book of Revelation and he's prone to do this. You think if he's prone to do it, then maybe we're prone to do it too? Remember the Corinthian church? They were prone to do this. And Paul rebuked them for it. They were hitching their spiritual wagons to people, to men. And some were saying, I'm, I'm a Peter. I'm on Team Peter. And some were saying, I'm Paul. I'm Team Paul. Others, I'm, I'm, I'm a Paulus. I'm Team Apollos. And Paul comes and he says, what are you doing? Do not boast in men. Why? Because you are Christ's. Like, no matter how good Peter or Paul or Apollos or Pastor Mark or anybody else is, no matter how good they are, they pale in comparison to Jesus. So you never let your admiration of that person eclipse your focus and love and and worship of God. You never do that. And John does this, and it's wrong. And the angel has this really brief but oh-so-potent rebuke of John in verse number 9. The angel said unto him, See thou do it not. John, stop. What are you doing? Don't do that. Why? Because I'm thy fellow servant. I am of thy brethren, the prophets, of them which keep the sayings of this book. So worship God. What a lesson. First of all, it's a lesson on the deity of Jesus, right? Because Jesus was a prophet, but he was a lot more than a prophet. Jesus was a man, but he was much more than a man. He was the God-man. So all through Jesus' ministry, what happens? People fall down, you find, at his feet, and they worship him. Like they anoint him with oil, and they, and they cry over him, and they, and they literally worship him. And Jesus never says what the angel says. Jesus never says to them, hey, I'm, I'm just a fellow servant. I'm just like you. I'm just normal. So don't worship me. Stop. Don't do that. Worship God. What does Jesus do? He accepts the worship. Now, who would accept the worship other than someone who thought himself to be God? God. Jesus thought and taught that he was God in the flesh. And we echo that sentiment, the deity of Jesus, right? But here this angel knows, I'm not God. You don't worship me, you worship God. And what does he do with John? He, first of all, you can write it down. He corrects him, but he doesn't condemn him. Which is so important. People need correcting, including you and me. Part of the word's job, part of the Bible's job is to give us reproof to give us correction. Part of a parent's job is to correct their child. Part of a friend's job is to deliver faithful wounds and to correct their friend. Part of a boss's job is to to correct the the, uh, actions of the employee and to get them to behave in a way that will support the business better. Like, correction is part of life, but you give correction 99.9% of the time without condemnation. You can correct somebody without condemning them. You can correct your child or your friend without assassinating their character. You can correct them without assigning wrong motives and intentions to them. Like there's a way to do correction that is profitable, and this angel does it. He corrects John, but then he identifies with him. And he says, like, I'm, I'm like you, pal. Like I'm a fellow servant. I, you know, I'm trying to learn and read, and I'm, I'm, I'm on your team, man. So he corrects him, but he never condemns him. And then what does he do? He takes that correction, and he wraps it up in what the Bible would call instruction in righteousness. I'm going to correct you, but then I'm going to tell you what you should be doing. Here's what not to do, do not worship me. Here's what to do, worship God. Now that instruction in righteousness is very brief, worship God, but it's so important because it's so easy to correct people's negative behavior, but never give them the positive behavior that they should be living. It's very easy with your words to correct, 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 don't, don't, no, no, stop, stop. But to never tell or model what would be actually positive behavior. And this, if you're in any position of authority at all, or even you have a friendship, learn this lesson. Give your correction without condemnation, but then package that correction in instruction and righteousness. I want to reprove or rebuke, but I also want to give the instruction and in righteousness. Because it's very easy to say, here's the problem. We can all problem find. It's not hard. We can all point at the government and say, here's what's wrong, and things should be run better, and, and they should spend our money better. It's easy to look at the, at the environment at work and look at the culture that has been created at work and say, well, this is toxic, and they never keep their, their end of the bargain on this, and they never this, and they never that. It's easy to find a child, your own child, and to find behavior that's negative and say, stop, stop, stop. But don't, don't just do that. You have to take it further. Do not be problem-oriented without being solution-oriented, Right? Find the behavior that's wrong, correct it, but then give the right behavior. And I I mentioned this some months ago in this Revelation series, but this is the difference between a critic and a coach. Because a critic and a coach see the same thing. They see the exact same problem. But a critic will just drive by with their criticism and shoot out correction or what you're doing wrong, and then they'll drive away, the end. But a coach is someone who will come alongside put their arm around and say, look, don't do it that way. Look, it didn't work. You fumbled the ball. You, you missed the shot. You didn't box out, whatever it is. Look, do it this way. Let me show you. You want to do this. You want to do that. See how that's done? Now, listen, we believe in you. You, you messed that one up. Okay, that's fine. Turn over. They all happen. Get back out there. You can do it again. That's a coach. And there's such a difference between someone who fault finds and problem finds and corrects, 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 and someone who actually will package that with instruction and righteousness and be there not not to just criticize and condemn people, but to really try to help them. There's such a difference. And this angel has this brief but beautiful moment where he says, let me try to teach you, John. We, We don't worship God's servants. We worship God. Now, one quick note that is maybe implied in the text, but isn't there overtly, but it's worth noting. One of the biggest helps for you when it comes to correcting people and doing it with the right heart and trying to give them good instruction and coach them, one of the biggest helps is to understand that there's a difference between intent and impact. So you correct people when the impact was bad by and large, but you have to try to factor in their intentions It doesn't mean that you won't correct their behavior. It just means that you'll do it in a different way. And and we try our best, even in the laws of our country, to do this. We, We would have, for example, manslaughter versus first degree murder. What happens, the impact of first degree murder? The impact is somebody died, they didn't need to die. What is the impact of manslaughter? Somebody died, they didn't need to die. The impact is identical. But we try to judge or discern via a jury, what was the intention? Was there an intention to kill? Was there premeditation to kill? Or was this just an accident? They were never intending to kill someone, but in impact they did. Now, there's there's a punishment for both of them, but the severity of the punishment will vary greatly based off of the perceived intention. You get that? you have to be very careful with people that you do not just correct the impact that they're making and their behavior or what actually became of it, but you, you want to f- try as best you can to factor in their intentions. Because intentions and impact are oftentimes very divergent from each other. Like There are well-meaning people that tried to do a good job on this new initiative at work, but the impact was a line item that was in big, red, bold numbers on the budget. <laughs> And it didn't actually work out well, but their intentions were right. It happens all the time in marriages where one of the spouses is intending to bless the spouse and try to help them or do something that is loving or respectful. But the impact that it makes on the spouse is it's perceived in a very different way. Now, you can't change that impact. It exists. But the intention should be factored in. One of the, the best examples of this is actually from a book, called The Road Less Stupid, which is a funny title. But they talk about intention and impact and how you have to judge both of them. And it gives a story from Great Britain in the days when they were wanting to colonize like the world, basically. And India was part of this colonization project. And when the Brits got there, uh, they were in charge, so to speak, but they were terrified of the venomous King Cobras They did not like them at all, and they wanted to get rid of them, especially in New Delhi and some of these areas. So they came up with, I don't know what they called it officially, but basically the King Cobra Eradication Program. (laughs) And they offered to the Indian people a bounty, that if you would bring a King Cobra in, you'd capture it, and you'd bring it in, they would then kill it and dispose of it, and you would get a bounty or a reward for it. So the Indian people were like... Great, this is a way to make money. So they started catching them and bringing them in. And the program was working. I mean, things were going swimmingly. The pool of king cobras was was shrinking. And it shrunk so much that it became difficult to find a king cobra or to catch a king cobra. And some very entrepreneurial Indians decided that they could catch the cobras and not give them but keep them and breed them and make little baby king cobras And then they could turn those in for money, and they could use this as a business venture. So they did. And they made it out, like in the bush, these little, almost like we would think of someone uh, trying to make some moonshine, like way out in the sticks, like they had these secret little compounds where they're making baby cobras. And it took a while for the British people to catch on to this, but eventually they figured out, Where are all these coming from? And this is what's happening. So they completely nixed the program. They said, there's no more. We're done with this. Now you have all these snake farmers who have no revenue stream from their snakes. And why would I want to keep them around? So what do they do? They just let them go. They release them. (laughs) And the impact of the snake eradication program in India was that there were double The snake's at the end of it than at the beginning of it, right? The intentions were one thing, but the impact was something not just different, but literally polar opposite of what they had intended to happen, right? Ever been there? Were you intended one thing, but the impact was literally 180? It was the opposite of what you were hoping would happen, You want to do your best to discern those things as you correct people, as you make decisions. If you're in a position of authority, as you make decisions that affect their lives, as you divvy out consequences, you want to discern that stuff. You say, but that's tough. I'm not God. I can't see their heart. Nah, that's the trick, right? What if I can't judge their intentions, which is normally the case. They may tell you their intentions, but normally you can't, and here's what you do. You give them the benefit of the doubt. That's what you do. You love them, right? Love thinks no evil. So I don't assume motives that are impure I don't assume wrong intentions and this will help you so much relationally if you will take negative behavior and you will correct it but you will package with it instruction and righteousness but if you're in a position to somehow divvy out consequences or recommend consequences to factor in the intentions and when you can't see the intentions clearly give the benefit of the doubt I promise you your relationships will go better Like you will be a better parent, you will be a better employer, you will be a better friend, you will be better at relationships if you can do it this way. And you have this moment where I don't think John is intending to do heresy and like fly in the face of God and worship the creature rather than the creator. I don't think he's trying to. I don't think his intention is to do something that's offensive or flagrant to God, but he does. And the angel has this correction where he says, look, let's correct Let's give instruction in righteousness, and let's move on. So here we go, verse number, where are we at? 10. John has this I rest my case moment. Verse 10, he saith unto me, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Right. This is for consumption now. This is not meant to be set on a shelf and preserved and you pull it out at a later date. This is not some army ration sitting in your basement cellar for the end of the world, okay? This is not that. Don't seal this up. Use this now. Today, you need to make decisions that are based off of what's here right now. But then verse 11, one of the most confusing verses in all of Revelation to me for a long period of time, but I think I understand it and it makes complete sense. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. What is he saying? Is John saying, if you're a good boy, keep being a good boy. But if you're a bad boy, you keep being a bad boy. Hang know, that's what I read. Did you read it? If you're unjust, be unjust still. That, that does not sound like good advice, does it? If you're doing unrighteous stuff, just keep doing unrighteous stuff. Is that what he's saying? Here's what he's saying. This is the end of the book. It's done. Don't seal it up. It's applicable for today. And I rest my case. I have nothing else to say to you. I have no new evidence to present to you. I have no new witnesses to call to the stand. I have no new arguments to make with you. I have none of that. The case is done. You now have to make up your mind. You are at the point now where I'm going to shut up and I'm going to be done, and you have to chart your course. You have to choose. If, if chapter 1 and 2 and 3 or to 10 to 20 to 21, if I haven't convinced you in 21 chapters, I don't think I'm going to convince you. If you're unjust, whatever, I can't do anymore, I can't say anymore. If, you, if you're just, great, but what he's saying is, I have rested my case, and if you have not responded to this yet, then I don't think you're going to respond to anything. I think, I think that we're done. And sometimes you get there with, with people that you're trying to convince, and you're trying to, like, you're trying to, to help them in the business world, they, they call it stop selling, right, of like, you're, you're, trying, you're trying to make your argument, and, you're trying, and John's like, I'm done making my argument. This is where the rubber meets the road. You have to choose, and, and this, is, this is the end of it. This is actually very similar in many ways to Abraham and the conversation that takes place with the rich man. If you remember in Luke, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Some of you don't remember, and you can, you can read it later. But this rich man dies but he, he does not have a relationship with God, and he ends up in hell. And the conversation that takes place is, is, Abraham, would you send somebody to tell my relatives, I don't want them to be here with me. And Abraham says, mm, they got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He says, but no, no, no. He's like, I know they have Moses and the prophets. I know they have the Bible. I know they got that. But if we would just send someone like resurrected from the dead, back to testify and tell them how bad this is, then they would listen, then they would hear. And what does Abraham say? I'm paraphrasing, but Abraham says, if they didn't listen to the word of God, they're not going to listen to somebody from the dead. This is the medium by which God speaks to his people. This is even the medium by which the Holy Spirit of God will convict people. And if they reject this, they're not going to listen to anything else, right? And this is a moment for John where he's like, I've I've given you the word of God. It's not my word, it's his word. It's a true word. It's a faithful word. It's it's the God of the holy prophets that has given it to you. And if you haven't listened to this and you're still unjust, then you're just going to be unjust. I don't know what to tell you. I don't don't have any other arguments if you don't listen to what I've said already. So you've charted your course and, and that's that. It's the end. He goes on to say in verse number 12, basically that Jesus is the plan and there is no other plan. Jesus is plan A. Behold, I come quickly, my reward is with me, and I give to every man according to his work shall be. Just a quick note on this, because you see, I come quickly, I come quickly, I come quickly. Verse number six, we saw that these things will shortly be. And the obvious question is like, I don't know, like, like, is quicker short 2,000 years? Like, that that was a while ago. Like what's what's up with quickly and shortly if it's been this long was that not true what's going on here and there's there's two arguments to to look at this and make sense of it i think both are in play here one is that quickly can mean like abruptly or suddenly not in reference to time but just it's going to be abrupt and sudden which i think is is certainly true the other though and i think is is the more honest argument is that We use time terms in relative ways often. Uh, Many of you do this with me all the time because right now our kids are young. We have uh, nine, seven, five, and three are, are the ages of our kids. And almost every week, without fail, somebody in the church will stop me in the hallway or see me or we'll be talking on the phone or whatever it is. Hey, I see you got some sun. You went to Lake Erie. And they'll say something like this, soak it in. I treasure those moments because they're going to be gone. They go by so quick. Like you're, you're in the hospital birthing room and then before you know it, you're walking them down the aisle at their wedding day or you're, you're seeing them leave the house or go off to college. So treasure it because the days are long but the years are short and it goes by so fast, right? How many of you would attest to that? You're like, that's true. And I hear it and I, and I try tried, I tried to hold on to it but now it's like, Man, he's halfway to, like, graduating high school. Like, we're at 9 of 18. It's gone by so fast. It has. Now, is 18 years literally quick? Uh, No, it's 18 years. But it feels that way, right? And when it comes to this revelation of Jesus, his coming, what is in store for us, the sum total of this revelation is that it's a bona fide promise when it happens, it will be abrupt in many ways. And from eternity's perspective, you could say it happened in a blink of an eye. You could say that this came so quickly. Even, even Peter mentions this when he talks about it. A, a thousand years is as a day with the Lord, or vice versa. This is something that is, is a time relative term. Verse number 13 goes on to say I am the Alpha and the Omega, I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Listen to this. Blessed are they that do his commandments, and they that might have right to the tree of life, and they may enter into the gates of the city, for without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Now, what's up with this? It looks like if you keep his commandments, right, you do good stuff, Then you have access to the holy city and the tree of life. And without are the dogs and the sorcerers and the people, like this list of people that we've seen a couple times in Revelation. And you could, if you're not careful, misconstrue it to be literally the opposite of what the book has said, to be like, well, we get to heaven by our works. And when we get to heaven, I guess there's going to be some people like outside the walls with protesting signs, like that are really bad people, like trying to throw eggs at us or something. Like, you know, what's going to go on there? That's not what it's saying. It's saying what the Bible says from cover to cover. Number one, we, we are redeemed, we are saved, we are forgiven, we get to go to heaven, we get to have eternal life by our faith in Jesus alone, through the grace of God alone. But when someone puts their faith in Jesus, that faith activates you and it will produce a life of righteousness. Not all of the time, not perfectly, but it will produce that. Faith without works is dead, right? So it would apply that you, if you're truly saved, authentically saved, that there are going to be some works that will follow. And you could say it in the way that verse number 14 says that if you keep his commandments, you're going to have right to the tree of life. But the opposite is true that those that do not know Jesus, they do not get heaven. It's not literally there's someone outside of the walls of heaven, you know, trying to throw a rope over and climb in or something. This, this is saying that those that have authentic faith enter, those that don't, don't. It was just what it said over and over and over again. And the way to all of this is verse 13. You can't miss that. Jesus, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He's A to Z. Everything is to and through him. If, if you think that you're going to do this, without Jesus, then you've completely missed the picture. It's all about Jesus. He is plan A. There is no plan B. He goes on to say, verse number 16, heaven is an open invitation. I would love to preach a whole sermon on this, but I will hit it very quickly. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify these things to the churches. I'm the root of the offspring of David. I'm the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride... They say, come. Let him that heareth say, come. Let him that is a thirst, come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. You get that? I want to testify this. I want people to know that the spirit is saying, come. This sound good. New new heavens, new earth, life in God. That sound good. Come. The bride, in context, the bride would even be New Jerusalem, is saying, come. If you hear this and you get the message, then you propagate the message. You go say, come. You be evangelistic. You invite others. You spread the word. You tell them that there's an open invitation. You tell them, if you're thirsty, we got you covered, as Justin would say. We got a drink for you, and the drink is free. What do you it, say? Do you want this? Do you want what's been promised here? Do you want eternity with God? Do you want to be his people? If you want this, then it's like taking a drink of water for free. It's not complicated. It's not hard. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to pay the way. It's been provided for you. The invitation is there, so respond to the invitation. I don't know your story, all of you. I'm not sure who all has said yes to Jesus and who has not. But based off of this, I would tell you say yes to Jesus. If you want it, he'll take you. He will clean you. We sang it this morning. Just as I am, I do come broken and wounded. I'm in need of repair, I'm in need of cleansing, but he'll clean you, he'll, he'll, he'll mend you, he'll help you. Come. If you're like, I'm thirsty for that, well, then take the drink. Put your faith in Jesus, don't delay. Don't wait. Number six, he says, that we announce and we affirm the word of God. We do not alter or amend the word of God. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of this prophecy of this book. If any man will add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. That does not sound good. Verse number 19, if any man will take away from the words of the book of this prophecy... God shall take away his part out of the book of life, out of the holy city, from the, from the things which are written in this book. Now let that sink in. That is an unequivocal statement that this is not a rough draft for you to edit. This is not like, hey, here's some helpful information and thoughts. Take them and do what you want to. You know, if you can improve them, add, subtract. No, 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 no. This has been over and over again. These are the true words, the faithful words, the words of God, the same God that spoke via the prophets. This, these are His words. And if they're His, you do not twist them, you do not distort them, you do not play with them. You don't mess with them. Because when you start to insert you, an imperfect human, into the equation, you start to really muddy the waters he's saying, this is my word, don't edit this, do not amend this, do not, try to, do not try to tweak this. Declare it, proclaim it, celebrate it, read it, live in it, immerse yourself in it, study it, yes, but do not mess with it. And this is true not just of the book of Revelation, this, this is true really of the whole Bible. You would find that Moses told the children of Israel this when, uh, when he gave them the commands of God. And he said, if you you keep these things, you're going to be blessed. But if you don't, and you mess with this, you're going to be cursed. Agur said the same thing in in Proverbs. He said that all the words of God were pure. And you do not add unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Don't mess with his word. Don't try to adjust it. And I'm well aware, okay, I'm well aware that sometimes that steps on your toes, I'm well aware that sometimes it steps on my toes. I'm well aware that sometimes it steps on culture's toes. But there are a lot of things in the Bible that are clear. There are some gray areas where it doesn't speak to every single issue of of your life. But there's a whole lot that's clear. And sometimes people don't like that. As a pastor, I get the brunt of that occasionally. But people come and they're like, man, the church, it feels warm. It feels friendly. I love that. But, but time out. Like I want you your intro to Harvest class and I learned that you, like you take the Bible literally. Like what do you mean? Well, like we believe it's all from God and it's all true and we're going to, like we're going to treat it that way and, and we're going to live by it. And like all of it? Yeah, like all of it. And there comes this moment where they're like, I don't know if I'm, gonna, if I'm, if I'm in on that. I like what he says over here, but I don't like what he says over here. I like what he says in the New Testament, but I don't know that I love what he says in the Old Testament. I like the red words. I don't know if I like the black words. I, 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 like, I like how you've used money, but I don't know that I like how you've used sexuality. There starts to be this picky choosy sort of stuff. It doesn't work that way, right? I'm well aware that we live in a rainbow world, but there's black and white words, okay? Black and white words don't go well in a rainbow world sometimes, but it's what it is. Like, you don't, you don't edit it. You don't take it and choose it to fit your fancy or to customize it to what you think would be the most palatable. No, it's the job of the church. It's the job of the pastors of churches. It's the job of the people that are God's people to say, thus saith the Lord. Here's what it says. Let's understand it. Let's study it. But this is what it says. Like it or lump it, it is what it is. It's his word, not ours, right? So don't, don't adjust it. Don't amend it. Declare it. Last one. His closing thought, I think, is just bring it on, Jesus. I can't wait. Verse number 20, he which testifies these things says, surely I come quickly. There it is again. And here's the response. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Jesus says, I'm coming. And the response is, I can get down with that. Amen. I agree with that. Like, bring it on. Come on, Jesus, right? That is the heart that closes the book. If you're telling me, Jesus, that you're coming and you're coming in power and authority and you're going to deliver this, it'll be your kingdom, you'll rule, you'll reign, new heavens, new earth, new body. Come on, bring it on. I want some of that. I yearn for that. This is very similar, you could say, to a spouse longing for their wedding day, like I'm engaged and I'm looking for this day, because that day will be filled with joy. It will be filled with love. It will be filled with a union that that is materialized in a way that it hasn't been before. Like there is this longing there that the people of God say, bring on that day of love and joy and communion that we'll be able to enjoy, that there will be so paramount to anything we've ever experienced. Like we want this. It's from the heart with passion and love that bring it on, Jesus. Like amen, I agree with that, I want that. I'll end with, with similar to how I started. I gave you this illustration, I think in Sermon 1. I think I gave it to you in the middle sometime as well and we're gonna end with it. Let's say there's two Britneys. Both Britneys are at the airport Waiting to receive pilot Bob, who's landing the plane in Pittsburgh. Brittany, number one, is an air traffic controller. Right, she's in the tower, charts, graphs, all this information and technology. It's her job to make sure Bob gets on the, the ground safely. She's very interested in Bob landing safely, but she's interested from the heart. She's a no Bob. She just needs to make sure that he gets down. Brittany number two is Bob's fiance. She's in the airport. She hasn't seen him in two weeks because he's been working a lot of overtime. And she doesn't know the altitude he's coming in at. He, she doesn't know even necessarily where the wind's blowing or all these things or the other. Tra- she, doesn't, hey, she has no chart. She has no graphs. She she's not studying any of this. She just knows Bob's coming home and he lands at this time. And she is there with a heart, right? She's there with a warm embrace. She is there with a smile. She's there with love. Both Britneys are receiving Bob. Both Britneys are super interested in Bob coming, but for way different reasons. And they approach it so differently. And the point of revelation is not for you to be Brittany one. It's not for you to get all your charts and all your graphs and all of your study materials and for you to know more than somebody else and for you to have a good argument in group this week so that you can prove your view over their view. You've missed it. If that's you, you've missed it. The point is to be Brittany too and to say, that's who Jesus is. Like that power and that authority and I get to be with him and I get to worship him It's to receive him from the heart. I hope you have some head knowledge. I do, but I hope more than that head knowledge that there is a heart of amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus, bring it on. I can't wait. And he closes the book with verse number 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I'm not big on benedictions. I normally don't end a service quite that way, but I think that may be the most fitting way to end our study of the book of Revelation with this benediction May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, you and you and you and you and you. Amen.